Hey, it's Miles, and you are listening to the Auburn Community Church Podcast. Normally, you hit play on this, and we jump straight into a sermon, but we wanted to take a second and invite everyone in our extended family into this season of generosity that we're stepping into as a church. We want to invite you, if you're a podcast listener, you follow along with what God has been doing through our church in this season please pray and consider whether or not God is calling you to give a financial gift above and beyond what you would normally give. It's no secret that this is a time of crazy expansion for our church as we're opening a new building and new locations and saying yes to missionaries and local ministries and ministry initiatives all over the place. And we want to invite you to participate in what God is doing through our church. This is by no means a burden or you have to give. This is a blessing and we feel like we get to give and you're invited into it. So whether that's on Venmo or on our website or reaching out about all the ways to give, maybe think about starting the discipline of giving weekly or monthly, even if that's just $5 or $10 or $15. We want to invite our people to invest into what God is doing through Auburn Community Church. We love you guys. Now enjoy this message. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Shine kids, you guys are dismissed to go learn about the Word of God. And I just wanted to say welcome to church today. My name is Gage Henry. If we have not had the chance to meet, and I'm the college and community pastor here. Welcome to Birmingham. Welcome to everybody who's joining us at Lake Martin. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online. We're so expectant and excited for what God has for us today. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been in this series, The Invitation of Jesus. And this series for me has been so powerful and so exciting in so many ways. And so before we look back at the beginning of Luke, at the invitation of Christmas, we have to look at the most neglected event that I believe ever happens in the life of Jesus. So today, if you need a title for this sermon, it is called The Ascension. The Ascension. And if you grew up in church, you know what that word means. It's the moment where the fully resurrected Jesus ascends in front of the eyes of the disciples to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the reason why I even think that it's uh, the most neglected event is because if you think about it, we're in Christmas time where we celebrate the arrival, the birth of Jesus by giving each other gifts, right? This is the birth of Jesus, Christmas, we celebrate it. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate that with Easter. He is risen. And all the church people said... Amen. I love that in the front row. Amen. Uh, he is risen indeed. And then we also have what? Good Friday, where we celebrate, literally we celebrate the death of Jesus. Yet, there is this historic moment where at the end of the resurrection, that's not the end of the story. Jesus shows back up and is doing ministry and showing up to people and ministering to his disciples. And after 40 days of doing this, he literally ascends back to heaven in front of their eyes. This is this epic, unbelievable moment. And I think that it's neglected because it uh, coincides with his most misunderstood teaching, which is better is it that I go. It's better if I leave. And if you think about it, your most painful moments in life are when someone who you love leaves you, whether they pass on or whether they neglect you or something happened in your childhood. Your most painful moment is when someone leaves you. Yet, what we're going to see today in this invitation of Jesus is that his final invitation to us is by leaving us. See, Jesus has to go to heaven in order for the disciples to go to the world. You think about this. You think about Christ with us, Emmanuel, we celebrate in Christmas time, becomes Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit transforming us. 
And so the invitation today, and what I believe could happen, is that some of you might catch a glimpse of what it means to have great joy. Great joy. Because that's the transition that happens in the life of the disciples in the story we're about to read. So, if joy is like the farthest thing from you today, if you're just being honest with me, if Thanksgiving was horrible, can we just get an amen from somebody in the room? If everything seems like it's crashing and burning, you've hit a wall in your faith, and joy is the farthest thing from your reality, what I want you to see today is that your joy in your spiritual life is connected to all other aspects of your life. We're going to look at how Jesus ascends into heaven, and that final invitation is actually into a deeper life of joy. Because the ascended Christ isn't just up there in heaven, disconnected from your reality. No, the ascended Christ now can live inside of you, transforming you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to read the story. Is anybody excited to read the story today? Hold up your Bible if you have it. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up high if you're in Birmingham, wherever you're at, hold it up. We're going to be turning to Luke 24, but I want to do a Bible drill for all of the overachievers in the room. If you have already wrapped your first Christmas gift, leave your Bible in the air. Wow. The Enneagram 3s in the room, the 1s, you're ready to go, you're achieving already. Everybody turn with me to Luke 24. Uh, my wife is the gift wrapper in our family, uh, but I will say I love that moment when you're wrapping gifts where, I don't know if you've had this experience with your scissors where all of a sudden like the Holy Spirit gets involved with them and you start like gliding through the paper. You know what I'm talking about? I love that moment. I don't like the tape part, but praise God for that scissor time. All right, anyways, moving on. We're going to be in the very end. You're going to be like, is that all we're reading? Yes, but we're going to get every single bit out of this passage of scripture. Luke 24 is where we're at. And we're going to start in verse 50. And I just got to say, before we read this, just go there in your mind's eye. Picture Jesus here on earth and picture what we're about to read in your eye. Let's read it. Verse 50. When he, Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Wow. Think of this story. We're going to go to every single verse in this passage a few times today, but think of this story. Think of where it started. The Son of God in heaven, descending down to earth. And now what we just read was the son of man, what, being born from the dead, ascending back to the right hand of the father. This began, the story began with a condescension, now it's ending with an ascension. If you think about the promise, the promised Messiah that was to come, he's here, he shows up, and then he fulfills the very promise that he was called to and then ascends back and gives us a new one. It gives us the power of the Holy Spirit that we'll see 10 days after this, the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost. But I think so many of us skip to Pentecost without seeing the invitation and the ascension. So let's go back and look at it. Remember what happened. Right before this moment, earlier in your Bible, what we talked about last week is that Jesus has a meal with his disciples and he downloads the invasion plan of the kingdom of God and it's through a table. Not through this. It's through meals and relationships. Let's go back and look at it. Verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of of Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
which Bethany, by the way, is on the Mount of Olives, which I just think is cool that on the Mount of Olives, which is the place where the Garden of Gethsemane is, the place where Jesus sweat blood and anguish, and more importantly, the place where the disciples fell asleep on him, is the place where he's now blessing them. Isn't that cool? And he blesses them, and it says that he lifted up his hands, which only one person would do. See, a priest would do this in the temple when the full sacrifice had been paid. The only time that a priest would lift up his hands and bless the sacrifice is after all of it has been paid. In essence, Jesus is saying, I have atoned for all of it. I have atoned for all the sin. And now he blesses them. And I love in verse 51, while he was blessing them, present tense, meaning he hasn't stopped and he won't stop with us, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And if you think about it, what is a blessing? A blessing has everything to do with identity. So think about this. The same heavens that opened up with the voice of God speaking identity over Jesus at his baptism are the same heavens that are now opened up receiving Jesus as he does what? Blesses the disciples with identity. They receive him up. And it says that he was taken up into heaven. And Mark's gospel adds this detail that I think is important. It says that he sat down at the right hand of God. Because an ascension is not just like I went up onto the stage right here. Or for some of you this past week, ascension is not just you ascending onto a ladder into the sanctification process of hanging Christmas lights. Like some of you have experienced that where you ascend, you go up. But ascension always has to do with a throne. It always has to do with kingship. It always has to do with someone, a ruler, ascending to the throne. In essence, what Jesus is showing them physically has spiritual implications. This is the moment where Jesus is being crowned king before their very eyes. And this is the moment where all of us would say, Jesus wins. The ascension is the exclamation point behind the phrase, Jesus wins. He sits down at the right hand of God, which is the power position to execute his will. And he ascends to this place. There's a physical reality happening with spiritual implications. And we know from Acts that at this moment, uh, it says that all the disciples are just gazing intently. They're literally just dumbfounded, staring at the sky that he left into. And it says that two men dressed in white appear to him. They're like, what are you guys looking at? And he says, the same Jesus that you saw go is going to come back. And then verse 52 happens. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There's our word again. If you were here last week, you know that Luke is constantly talking about joy in the negative. In fact, he only says the phrase great joy twice. That's at the beginning of Luke and at the end of Luke, right here. The other time he says it is when he says, I bring you, the angel says this, I bring you good news that will bring you great joy. A Messiah has been born. I think Luke is trying to get us to see the connection and understand what true joy is. So here's something I want to just kind of help us out. I want us to be on the same page about a definition of joy. So I want to put this on the screen. I'm just kind of walk through it real quickly. Joy is this. It's the deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows that all is well with God. This is what joy is. Joy is the deep down sense that all is well with God. It's this feeling, this knowing, I know I'm right with my heavenly Father. I know I'm right with God. And so that has a few implications. It means that joy is a gift from God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And true joy is actually only possible if you know God. 
You'll literally feel bothered long enough to feel, I know there's something more out there. I know there's something more out there. I know there's something more out there. I believe that true joy is only found in a relationship with God. And also, if you know God, it's only found in surrendering your will to God, not getting what you want from God. It's for surrendering. God, you can have it all. True joy is the deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart. So I think about Jesus when he taught on uh, the vine and the branches. I love that teaching. It's one of my favorite teachings in the entire Bible about uh, forming us into the image of Jesus. And he says this at the end of that discourse. He says this in John 15, 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He said, this is about joy too. This is about enjoying me. And so I don't think I have to convince any of you in this room that uh, I would say our culture is not happy. Can anybody get an amen on that? Um, That we are literally not happy as a culture. A lot of uh, social scientists right now are saying that we're emotionally regressing as a culture. And it's due to a few factors. Um, One of the things that we've discovered, science in in the recent years has discovered that anxiety operates more like a virus and an infection rather than an isolated incident, which means that it's spreading. And the reason why is because the commonality between one another when we connect with one another is what? How busy I am, how overworked I am, how overwhelmed I am, how tired I am, how exhausted I am. Because if I am busy, then I matter. Let's just be honest. If I'm busy, then I matter. On top of the fact that we in the history of the world are the culture that has the most pressure on us for pleasure. In the history of the world, we have this feeling that I have to feel happy. I have this pressure to feel happy all of the time. And what happens? We all feel miserable. It's crazy how that happens. You have this combination of busyness combined with this need to feel pleasure all of the time. And a recent study that I just have to quote and say, this year, 2022, a study by Global Health Data said that the United States of America is the second most depressed country in the world. Behind who? Behind Ukraine. Think of that. Literally, where is my next meal coming from? To all of the power in the entire world at our disposal. Yet we are emotionally almost the same. I read another study that said that 15 years ago, 7% of college students dealt with depression. The conservative estimates in today's world, even at Auburn, are over 30%. Y'all, we are not happy. We are not feeling joyful. And I'm not here just to depress you. There's hope. One of the, uh, the cultural commentators and pastors that we've quoted a few times here, Mark Sayers, he wrote a book called Reappearing Church, and he said, this is for you individually, personally, the number one way to tell if there's chronic anxiety in your relationships is if there is what he called an absence of playfulness. How do I tell if I'm feeling over-anxious in my life? How do I tell if my relationships are full of anxiety? Is there playfulness in them? Is there a joy in them? So um, my, I have a son who's two years old, and I think he's cute. Um, some may disagree, but I think he is. And uh, the other day, we had a babysitter there, and he always sends us videos. Not he. She always sends us videos. And uh, I got this video, and I thought it would very, um, it would sum up this point. Let's just say that, about playfulness. So I have this video. Why don't you check it out? Uh, so first off, if you couldn't tell by his super advanced language skills, um, he was saying the word big bubble. Second off, um, I don't know if you could tell, there was no big bubble. <laughs> it was a tiny bubble at best. But right now, uh, in, our, in our family, he has put the word big, the adjective big, in front of everything. 
which is great, except for the fact he walks around the house saying, big mama, big mama, big mama, big mama. And I'm like, okay, let's stop on that one. Um, but it's funny to me because there's this playfulness about him. Even things that aren't big are now big to him. And I think that's so indicative. And I wish that we acted like that more with God. I wish we had this elevated sense of gratitude and pleasure when we think about him. You know, neurobiologists have showed that the, the majority of the brain's development actually stops in childhood, except for this one area called the right orbital prefrontal cortex. This is the area of your brain called the joy center. So when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it's actually the part of your brain that regulates your emotions, your pain control. It's the only part of your brain that overrides the major um, main drive centers of your brain. So food, sexual impulse, rage, fear, all of those things. The joy center is actually the only part of your brain that can override those feelings. In essence, joy is literally the engine and the fuel behind all other aspects of your life and all ability that you have to be disciplined. And joy is that sense, that deep down sense that all is right with God. And verse 53 finishes the story after by saying, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Why would they do that? Because the ascension is so much more than just Jesus going back to heaven. In fact, you can write this down. The ascension is not just Jesus going back to heaven. The ascension is Jesus ushering heaven in through a new humanity. And it's not that we're different. It's that Christ is not just with us anymore, Christ is in us now. And so what happens is, is that because he is in us, we have so much more power to live the life we couldn't on our own. And so what's interesting is that the resurrected Jesus, again, appears to different people along the way. And one of the people he, persons he appears to is Mary Magdalene. And in this encounter that he has with her, I think he's like leaving her and it says that she grabs hold of him, which I love. It's like if I, I let go last time and you were crucified. This time I'm not letting go. And she grabs hold of him and Jesus says this in John 20. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus is saying, let go. It'll be better that way. Because what happens is, is that when Jesus ascends to the Father, what that means is that he's no longer bound by time and space. As a person, he can be in one place at one time. But now, when he ascends to the Father, what that means is he's supremely powerful and he's infinitely personal. It means he can be everywhere and anywhere at any moment. He's accessible. He's available at any time that anybody would need him. If you call on him as Lord, that means he'll be there for you. How good is that? And the twist that I found for the disciples is this. Is that yes, Jesus ascends physically to the right hand of the Father. But the twist for all of us is that Jesus ascends spiritually to the heart of every believer who would call him Lord. See, Jesus ascends to heaven, but now heaven can live in us. And now heaven can live through us. I love what A.W. Tozer says, is the will is the seat of your soul. Your will, the seat of your soul, what you choose to do with your life, and now the ascension is Jesus' invitation to say, let me sit on that seat. Let me sit on the seat of your soul. Let me direct your path and guide you. As Tim Keller puts it, as ascended Lord, he is spreading the gospel and building up his church by working in the hearts of people while he guides all the events of history toward a glorious end. So here's where the sermon to me needs to make a transition. 
We need to make a transition from Jesus ascending to the throne of the cosmos, disconnected from us, up there somewhere, an event that happened in the past, to Jesus ruling and reigning on the throne of your heart, transforming your mind, informing your emotions, inspiring your body to live the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. I love this invitation. St. Augustine says it this way, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. You ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. There, with me, in me, Jesus, on the seat of my soul. So the question is, is he truly ruling and reigning on that seat? And so what we're going to do in the next few minutes is I actually want to show you something that we taught and learned at seminary. And it's, don't like hold me to this, like this is Bible, like this is the Bible, focus here. But there's something that just kind of helps us walk through the invitations of Jesus on different uh, places in our journey. And so I'm going to put it up there. This is just a, a map. Again, don't hold me to this. It's like this is the Bible. But this is something I feel like will be helpful for you as a tool to use to kind of identify where you are at. And so we have it up there. And we're going to walk through them really quickly. But uh, stage one, the recognition of God, then the life of discipleship, and then the productive life, and moving all the way through the journey inward, through the wall, the journey outward, and then the journey into a life of love. And so let's just start real quick. This, by the way, the end is to become like Jesus, to become love to other people. And so each kind of stage through this, I guess, kind of builds. And so the first one is the recognition of God, and this makes so much sense to so many of us. This is the moment where all of a sudden generic higher power God becomes personal. This is the moment where a lot of us see Jesus as who he truly is. And a lot of us get stuck here because we never find a community to belong to. And so if you, you get to this stage or you see somebody at this faith, faith, faith journey moment, what happens is they get stuck because they try to believe in God without actually obeying him. But then if you do obey him, you move into stage two, which is the life of a disciple. And you've seen this happen where all of a sudden you see that person that they're praying all the time, they're learning how to read the Bible, they're learning how to uh, be in community group. Maybe this is a moment where their entire friend group has to change because they're uh, eliminating every single external behavior that takes them away from Jesus. So you see people stop drinking, you see people stop looking at pornography, you see people start doing everything they can to change the aspects of their life that aren't arranged towards Jesus. And people get stuck here by staying in the seat and never serving. You get stuck here by continually jumping from church to church or continuing to stay a consumer at church rather than actually giving your life to others in church or giving your life to the world around you. And that moves into the, the next stage, the productive life, which is exactly what it sounds like. The productive life is being a disciple transitions to making them. And I just got to say this, there's a, um, a Tozer quote, A.W. Tozer, he's a theologian that I love. Obviously, I've referenced him a few times in the sermon. He says this, and I think it'll be helpful for some of you. He said, many of us have become extremely skillful in arranging our lives so as to admit the truth of Christianity without being embarrassed by its implications. Oh. Many of us have arranged our lives in such a way, say, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but our lives don't look like it at all. But then we move into the productive life. And this is the, the time in our life where we equate growth in Christ to doing for Christ. This is the moment where we say, hey, I do my quiet time this much, I serve this much, I give this much, I show up to every single community group. You start checklisting Christianity. You start saying, as long as I am producing for God, then I am good with God. And a lot of us, to be honest, this is where the research studies show 85 to 90% of evangelical Christians stop here. They stop at, hey, if I just do the right things, then I'll be good with God. But what happens is you hit something called a wall. 
or you have something in your life happen where it forces you inward. It forces you to say, God, are you really on the throne of my life? Are you really on the seat of my soul? And the wall for so many of us, you know exactly what it is. It's the crisis of faith. It's the moment where cancer comes into the story. The diagnosis, the layoff, the painful breakup, the betrayal of a friend. But ultimately what ends up happening is if you get stuck just trying to produce for God, you get mad at God. What ends up happening is you ascend to the throne of your own soul and then try to control and manipulate everything because you believe you are sovereign. And you start to rule and manipulate and it's the only way to actually destroy everything that you love. But the wall forces you inward or it keeps you from ever going there. Again, this is where most everybody stops. So I'm just going to finish these really quickly. Um, C.S. Lewis says it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, this whole entire series has been an invitation of Jesus into the deeper life. And what happens is when you look at the cross as, no, it's not just substitution, it's an invitation. And it's not just I'm going to admire the fact that he died there. No, I'm going to imitate what it looks like to die. No, this is a moment for us to realize that what does it look like to journey inward? To die to self. That's what Paul says. The deep journey inward is how you let God rule on the seat of your soul and you live without grasping everything. And then you move into stage five, which says the journey outward. And this is where the, the phrase, we have accepted the reality of our life with joy. We've accepted the reality of our life with joy. This is my life. This is my career. This is who I am. These are my kids. This is where I'm going to live. This is my career. This is everything in my life. And I'm going to accept it with joy. And so this, uh, this past week, I spent Thanksgiving with family, and this is a time where I feel like family really comes to light, different issues in it. And I've been very candid about different struggles in my own personal life, and one of the walls that continually I hit in my journey with Jesus is actually something related to my mom's breast cancer. And so if you don't know, uh, I've talked about it a few times, but ultimately my mom is a stage four metastatic breast cancer, and to be honest, she should have passed away. We had the moment where it was like, hey, say your goodbyes. And we've said goodbye, and that was like six months ago by the grace of God. And there's still moments where I watch how Jesus shows up in powerful ways. And I'm so um, blessed beyond belief to still be able to see her and to love her. And Thanksgiving was awesome. But we had this uh, conversation knowing that literally this was yesterday. It happened yesterday. And uh, she's on chemotherapy. And um, her hair is starting to fall out. And she's kind of self-conscious about it because half of her hair is gone. And, and she said, Gage, you know what's interesting? Is that this will be the last weekend of my life that I will have my own hair. Because I'll be on chemo the rest of my life, which means that the hair that I have that's falling out right now will never grow back. And then something unexpected happened. She started laughing. She started laughing. She's like, I guess I better get some good wigs then. I'm like, okay, mom, all right. Um, that's so hard. Yet she accepted the reality of her life with joy. And then the last stage is just the life of love. You're Jesus to people. You have childlike wonder and the wisdom of old age combined. That's where all of us want to get. So where does this apply? What does this intersect with the ascension? If this deeper life of joy is found in the ascended Christ, what does that mean for us moving forward? Now, I'm going to be honest. If you've been coming to ACC for a while or you've been coming to ACC in Birmingham for a while, this is a moment where maybe you came to this church and you're like, man, something felt different. 
Like, it feels like every word is kind of directly at me, or it feels like the Spirit of God is just moving through worship. Like, I'm trying to understand what is happening. And I, I believe that all of us in this room have had our, in a lot of ways, have had our minds open to the reality of Scripture. Like, you're hearing Scripture preached right now. I just wanted to look, want you to look up a little bit in your Bible to verse 45. And verse 45 says this. Then he opened their minds, Jesus, so they could understand the Scriptures. So think about this. This is the final moment. He's having a meal with his disciples. And he opens their mind to the truth of the scriptures. This is where most of us stop in our journey. This is where a lot of us said, yep, my minds were open. My mind, I understand. I'm good. I believe it. Yep, I'm good. And I think that they got it too. But the great joy comes on the back end of obedience. And so in my opinion... If you've been coming for a while and you're like, man, this feels different in this church, and what, what is it? Here's what it's not. It's not a speaker. It's not the band. It's not our methods or our structures or our amazing location in Birmingham. It's not all of these things. You know what it is? There are enough people amongst our midst in our body who are dead set on making sure that every single aspect of their life, emotionally and relationally, nothing is off limits to Jesus. All of us, the people who are like literally so serious about it, all they want to say is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And when they say that, what they're saying is, I want every part of my life to be touched by Jesus. I want him to sit on the seat of my will, on the throne of my soul, on the throne of my heart. I want him to make everything right. And I want to do everything possible to be emotionally healthy, to pursue relationships, to have the hard conversations, to step into conflict, to do it well. We want to say, all of us, just so you know, the plan is, we want to model our life after Jesus, arrange it in such a way to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm not perfect. This is so hard. This is so challenging. But I want to look like Jesus. You want to as well? Come on. Let's do it. Come on. We can do this together. We can do this in community. Because fullness of joy is found in the full participation. So before we kind of end this time together, I want us to actually look back at the story again. And I want us to look with fresh eyes on the details of this story. Because I believe something could stand out to you. Maybe for the first time. Even though we've read through it twice now, let's look at it one more time. So look at it in Luke 24, verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So did any details to you stand out as a little strange? Did anything that Luke kind of specifically mentions, uh, were they kind of odd to you? When I read this story the first time, what really stood out to me was this feeling of the vicinity of Bethany. What does that mean? Like, of all the things he could have done, of all the things, of all the different situations he could have done, he could have just ascended right there from the table. It had been fine, the same thing. Why would Jesus get up from the table and walk over to the vicinity of Bethany before ascending back to the Father? You know, I did some research because it just bothered me so much that I, I found out that Bethany literally means the house of affliction. It's the city of affliction. It's the city of pain. It's the city of your deepest wounding. And also, I began looking, who lived there? You know who lives in Bethany? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So if you think about this, what happens in that story with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Lazarus is raised from the dead. That's usually what we say. Jesus shows up, Lazarus is raised from the dead. But what really happens in that story 
is that they're trying to get his attention. They're saying, Jesus, your friend's about to die. Show up. And then he shows up and everybody's like, you're late, Jesus. Martha's mad. He's like, I'm the resurrection and the life. She's like, okay. And then he walks over and there's people on the outside of the tomb and they're all weeping. And it says the verse, Jesus wept. I've always found that so strange. He's the one who can raise him from the dead right away. Yet he walks over and he enters into the pain. And I believe he's not like weeping as like, oh no, he's dead. I believe he's weeping at the sorrow of sin. It's angry tears. It's frustrated at what death has caused in this world. And I think he's just sad he lost a friend, enters into the pain. So Bethany is the place where Jesus wept. But not only that, because you know the story. After that, he says, come out, Lazarus. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb and says his grave clothes fell. And everybody's celebrating. Everybody's happy. He's alive. What does Jesus tell him to do? Let's go to Simon the leper's house and throw a party. Of all people, again, the leper, the unclean person. He's like, we're going to Simon the leper's house. We're going to throw a party. And this is the location. All the priests, all the people who are religious, all the Pharisees in this time are frustrated. They're like, why would he go to the unclean house? And he shows up there and he reclines at a table. And it says that he reclined at this table. And while he was reclining there, Mary comes over to him with an alabaster jar of perfume. And it says that she breaks the jar and anoints him for burial. And Jesus is so like feeling the moment, I guess. And he's like, every time the gospel's told, you'll hear about this story. Amazing moment happens. But look what else happens. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus. What happened in Bethany? Why would he go out to the vicinity, like close enough to be able to look into it? I think he had something to teach them. What happened in Bethany? This is the place where Jesus revealed his deepest human emotion. This is also the place where Jesus experienced his deepest relational wound. This is the place where he was betrayed and this is the place where he wept. And he walks over there with the disciples and he looks at them and he says, you are to go back, return to Jerusalem. That is the plan that he gave the disciples, return to Jerusalem. You're supposed to go back. What's Jerusalem? It's the place where he was crucified. So if you're still like, I don't know how this all fits and where this connects, you know, after Bethany, you know where they go? Jerusalem. And they get to Jerusalem and he's on trial, he's arrested. And the last thing, that Jesus says before he goes to Golgotha and is crucified is the final thing that Jesus does in his return to glory in the ascension. Let's read it together. They say, are you the Messiah? He says, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds. This is the statement that gets him crucified. This is the last thing that happens before he goes to the cross. And now the ascension is the fulfillment of that promise. He's coming on the clouds. Angel said, he's coming back. You can trust him. And what's the only rightful response? Verse 52, then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with, there it is again, great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. 
See, Jerusalem, the location of the most horrific moment in human history where the Savior was crucified is now being transformed into a place of continual praise and worship. The disciples go back. You know how I know they went back? We're here today. The church began in Jerusalem because these disciples went back to the place where literally most of their pain came from. Remember that story of Emmaus where they're leaving, where all their hopes were dashed? It happened in Jerusalem and they turned. And we have the same invitation to us today. See, the joy you wanna experience in your spiritual life is actually through your deepest pain. It's actually through your deepest wounds. It's actually allowing Jesus to sit on the seat of your soul and dictate everything, to reign and rule as supreme. And the invitation for us today, I believe, is what place does Jesus need to go with you? See, I love that he led them to the vicinity of Bethany. See, he leads you close enough to not relive it, but to redeem it. What place do you need to go with Jesus? A lot of times discipleship is just being willing to go with Jesus in a place you wouldn't go on your, go on your own. So for a lot of us in this room, a lot of us listening online, a lot of us sitting in Birmingham right now, this is an invitation to the wounding that you had from somebody, the conversation that you need to have. You know, I had a mentor in my life one time tell me, he said, is there anything right now in your life, is there anyone right now in your life that if Jesus was here today, he would say, no, you need to meet with that person. And immediately a guy popped into my mind, we had some tension. And he said, text that guy right now. You're setting up a meeting. It's time, it's time, it's time. Don't wait any longer, it's time. And I believe this same thing, it's time to go back. It's time to go back to Jerusalem and do what? Praise God, worship him, trust him, love him. So we're gonna do that together. If you've got communion sets on the way in, you go ahead and grab those and get them out. We're gonna go back to Jerusalem. We're gonna go back to the crucifixion together. And we're gonna remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross the atoning sin, one for all. So I don't know where this lands for some of you. I think for some of you in this room, you know exactly the person that you need to talk to. You know exactly the wound, the emotional insecurity that you have, that Jesus has to touch. You know right now whether or not Jesus is truly reigning, if he's truly ruling you from the inside out. So if you don't have one, just raise your hand. All of our locations, if you don't have one, a volunteer will come by. This is an opportunity for you to talk to God, to let him truly ascend to the throne of your heart. He's ruling in the heavens. You know, a final idea I'll leave you with. Isn't this amazing? That as Jesus ascends to heaven, you know who he's ruling it for? Us. Isn't that awesome? That the one who's on the throne of the universe, we are now his temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit together. So we have this invitation before him. So I love this moment. Husbands, you pray over your wives. This is a time for you to spend time with Jesus. And now that it feels like everybody's kind of set, I want to finish this time by just reading a psalm over you. I just want you these words to kind of go over you. It'll be the last thing that I say. But it's Psalm 1611. So let me read this over you. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right 
hand. Take some time with Jesus.